wasn't until uh, recently that I began to appreciate poetry at all. Uh, growing up, especially in, in high school, during those years when you know we had to have those classes where you had to read some poetry and uh, that kind of literature and all, I really was not very much of a fan. I would just say, you know, why do I have to interpret this thing? Why can't they just say what they mean? Why, are they, why, why, why all the ambiguity? Why not just, if you don't care enough to tell me, why do I have to work hard to understand what you're saying? I realize now I was kind of like uh, someone trying to say uh, you could read a description in just you know regular terms of a sunset and understand its beauty. You have to use different language to capture something. In fact, you really can't learn things uh, without experiencing them yourself, seeing them for yourself, or having it described to you in a way that you can really see it at least with your mind's eye in your imagination. And as we look now at our next song of the king, in, we're looking at Psalm 24, and it is a, a wonderful poem, as all songs are. They're, they're poetry, and in Hebrew, poetry tends to not rhyme, like in English, but it's more about parallel concepts and and elevated language and sequences and things of that nature and spirally type things. Uh, and this psalm is really good. It's got wonderful form to it. But as we dig into the content and to the meaning of it, really, we see something even more impressive. As it talks about God's character, who God is, and an appropriate human response, and in fact, a response that captures really the longings of our heart for greatness, for, for things to at least be better than they are now. And in fact, as we look at the psalm, Psalm 24, we're going to see how your response can lead to true greatness. Now, will you read with me Psalm 24? This is God's Word. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Oh Lord, we come before you thankful for your word, that it is trustworthy and true, 
that it reaches not just our minds and tells us information. It, it reaches not just our, our hands and gives us instructions, but Lord, it reaches our hearts and shapes us from the inside out. Please do that today in and through us as your spirit works with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In many ways, Psalm 24 is, is about fear, even though the word doesn't show up here. Fear is a central concept in the psalm. And, and one of the responses that it aims to get from us, and, and not just any fear, but an appropriate fear. And as you know, if you've lived at all, fear can be a good thing, right? Fear keeps you from doing foolish things. Fear keeps you from getting hurt or hurting others. But fear can also kind of paralyze you, keep you from engaging in good things. You know, I, I, <laughs> I have a fear of heights. It's not crippling or anything like that, but it kind of kept me from getting up into the top of the arch when we lived in St. Louis for four years. The rest of my family went up there. I was absent for one reason or another. Uh, I, I, I missed out on a really neat view of the city. You know, those are things you miss out on fear. But on the other hand, right, if you, if you don't have enough fear, you really can get hurt or hurt others. There can be consequences. Just ask, you know, the, the reckless texter and driver who's not thinking of the danger or the younger person who runs out without looking both ways in the street. There are appropriate fears and there are crippling fears. And as we look at this passage, <clears throat> the psalm is dealing with fears because it's asking the question, how can you reach the heights? Or even just how can, can you get things a little better in your life? And there's a lot of fear associated with that. Or there should be, but not too much, right? An appropriate amount of fear. And in fact, the, the message of the psalm is, is this surprising answer of, you know, how do you get to a better place? How, how do you reach the heights? Well, the reality is that you have to put fear in its proper place, right? You were made not merely to experience the heights, the great view from up on high, spiritually and in every other way, but you are made to enjoy it without fear. And so the task for us is to put fear in its proper place. And in particular, fear of the Lord is the overarching fear the psalm deals with. The fear of the Lord is, is the key to true greatness, to experiencing the heights and joy itself in so many ways. And so that's what we're going to look at today. What does that mean? How do we put that into place? How do we put fear in its right place? The first thing we need to know is that uh, the psalm tells us that God is, is greatest. Okay, God is greatest overall. Verses 1 and 2. The earth 
is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it, the earth, upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. You know, the picture is, is God is greatest that he is, he's outside of everything. God stands above it all, outside of it all. He founded the earth. You know, he molded it and shaped it. The, the, the dry ground and the seas he put in place. He established it. The, the language there is of, of certainty, of, of fixedness. That it's not going anywhere. That he established it and founded it and it continues to operate. That he made such a good thing that it can carry on. You know, it's his and it's good. Of course it is, right? Because the one who's the greatest made it. So it's going to be good and it's, it's going to be his. You know, it's, he's not only outside of everything, but he is the owner of all things. Literally, verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. In case you missed it, the world and those who dwell in it. That's one of the features of Hebrew poetry, that it repeats things, sometimes just tweaking a word or two, or sometimes a concept develops over multiple lines. And here you see it in this. The, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Essentially saying the same thing, that, that God's the owner of all that is all the stuff in the world. And so it's all going to be fundamentally good and it's all going to fundamentally operate well and continue because he is the one who made it. And there's this great gap between the creator and all of creation. And he has made it so that in fact, everything is kind of so good that we sometimes can get confused about God's role in the world, right? The, the very grace of God in giving us such a good world and setting it up so well is that we can use all of those things to avoid him. We, in fact, can lose God in the goodness of all creation that he's given to us. That it operates so well that we can think, oh, it doesn't even need God. You know, why? There's no God. Look at the way everything just works. Right? Or we could say, well, yeah, maybe there is a God, but he's just far away. And he kind of kicked everything off and it's all up to us. Or we could say, it's so very good. Everything is so very good that it almost is like God. And we can begin to worship all that is and believe that God is in everything. It's a fundamental problem of failing to recognize that God is greatest and that the stuff that we see is from him by his grace to us. We can be like children who get wonderful toys from their parents at Christmas or a birthday or something and they're so into the toys and the wonderful gifts they've been given that they just ignore everyone else and everything else. They're just wrapped up in their own pleasure, playing with the great toys and ignoring the one who gave them. That is the danger of being in a very good world. And the other danger can be as well that we just think, oh, it's totally up to us that if we don't fix global warming or pollution or any other thing in this world, that it's just going to 
be the end of everything. You know, it leaves God out of the picture. I'm not saying that should excuse us from being responsible or being good stewards or taking good care of things or pursuing justice or anything like that. I'm saying there is a way that we can be afraid of the future because we just look at the stuff around us. There's a way that we can have confidence for the future because we're just looking at the stuff around us. And both of those are equally wrong. That God would call us to have a fundamental fear a fundamental respect for him above all else. Because he is the greatest. The second thing the psalm is showing us here is that, you know, he is the greatest and we can live ignoring him in a lot of ways because of what he's given us is so good. But the reality is that we continue to see people pursue him. You know, even, even so self-acknowledged atheists want things to be better, right? They, they, they search for something greater, and sometimes we'll just find it in science or in, in getting published or whatever it is, gaining a large following. We, we all are searching for something bigger and greater, which really doesn't make sense if this is all there is. Right? If there is no one greater than the stuff, the stuff should satisfy us. But we find again and again and again that the stuff never fully satisfies us. The stuff will never be enough. Which brings us to the second point. Not only is God greatest, but you were made for greater. You were made for greater than the stuff here. You have a desire every one of us, to climb. I did it again. I do that like every other day. Little foamy thing. There we go. Sorry. So we have this desire to, to climb. Look at verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? There is this desire to, to go up. The question isn't, you know, why ascend? The question is, well, who? Who can ascend? Who can go up? It's not a command. Go up. It's acknowledging the desire. That, that We wonder who really can reach the heights. Who can experience greatness? And, and, and if God is the greatest, who can be there with him where he is? And before answering that question... Notice just the simple fact that the psalmist is assuming you want to climb. Who can ascend? And what you want, typically, verse 5 says, is, is a blessing. You shall receive a blessing from the Lord. There, there is a sense where every one of us wants to reach higher because that's where the good is. We know it's better. If we could just get a little higher, we will be better. And that's, the, that's the, the easiest way to understand the word blessing and to not have it just disappear in meaning is to say it's, it's, it's better. The opposite of a curse. A curse is that everything would be worse or some parts of your life would be worse. That's a curse. A blessing is that it would be better. And so we have a sense that we want to rise up. They're almost synonyms, really. They're, really, we want things to be better, and we think the way to do that is by climbing, by ascending, by reaching for the heights. 
but what, have you, what are you climbing for? What are you expecting? What, are, what, are, what is your hope as you ascend? We have all kinds of things we could be aspiring for. You know, to end cancer as we know it, to, you know, eradicate disease in general or a particular disease, to make progress in technology and science. You know, what is it that, that we think is climbing higher? You know, typically it seems to me that what, what we view as ascending and as higher and as progress tends to be something achievable, something imaginable, something better than the other people around you. There seems to be a sense of essentially when we're ascending, we are not only wanting what's better, but to prove that, that we are kind of worthy of what's better. That we are the people. I am the one who could reach it. In other words, it seems to me like we're seeking what is greater, but we're falling short of the greatest, of what is greatest. We're desiring to climb, which means we ought to be searching for what is greatest. Look at verse 6 again. This is the generation of those who seek him who seek your face, even Jacob. Searching for what is greatest is, if you really want it, seeking the face of God. It is seeking him. As verse 6 says, this is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, And I would take it as even Jacob there is describing the generation. Who is the generation that seeks his face? It's Jacob, that is God's people. Another way of referring to them, Israel or Jacob, Judah, God's people. God's people, in other words, in particular, demonstrate, whether we try or not, we demonstrate what it looks like to ascend, to seek the face of God. And the one who seeks God and finds him, look at verse 5, he gets righteousness from the God of his salvation. Verse 5, he shall receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. In other words, the people who seek the Lord and find him find the real blessing. They find the better place, even the, the greatest place, the best place. The people who seek him and find him are right with the God who is the greatest. Is there a better place to be than with the one who is the best and the greatest? Because what we often are trying to do as we ascend is to be the best and the greatest. And we're never going to get there because there's only one who is the best and the greatest. But he offers to us an invitation to come to his side, to be with him and to share in his greatness. But who can get there? Look at verse 4. Who can get there? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who's not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. There's a pattern in the poetry of verse 4 where it goes outside, external, inside, internal, internal, and then outside again. He who has clean hands, outside, and a pure heart, inside. Who has not lifted up his soul, inside, to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully, outside. God is the focus of those inner realities, right, of the pure heart and lifting up our soul to falsehood. The sense there is he's not lifted up his soul to falsehood means that that you have not worshipped what is vain, what is empty. In other words, you have not been engaged in idolatry, worshipping anyone other than the true God or anything other than the true God. This internalness of a pure heart and pure worship, in other words, is also joined with, right? That, that's who, who can ascend. That's what we're talking about. It's not only this right relationship with God, pure heart, not lifted up a soul to idolatry, but also with other people. He has clean hands. That he only deals with people or she only deals with people in right ways. There's no taint to what they're doing. What their hands are applied to is pure and good and clean. Nor have they sworn deceitfully. No no white lies, no little stretches of the truth, much less outright falsehoods. It puts together in the in this one verse that really the 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 the, the greatness is tied to relationship with God and other people. That you cannot experience greatness. You, you, you were made for something greater, which would include a relationship with the greatest one and with others. You, you can't have just this direction or just this direction. You have to have both to truly find greatness. That's what you were made for. It boils down to relationships with God and with others. The greatness is not merely better, but it's the best because it's with the Lord who is the greatest. And so the question then is, okay, if if God is greatest and we were made for greater than what we experience here, that we were made for these relationships with other people, people that were good and right and made for a relationship with God from a pure heart, you know, who can do that? Who can experience that? The psalm makes a huge transition in verse 7. Between verse 6 and 7. And it, it moves into commands. And not just shaping us, but you see commands here in verses 7 through 10. That that essentially the command is that you would be open to greatness. What does that mean? That you would be open to greatness. 
That's what the Lord is calling you to. They're, they're the commands here to, to lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up. Those are both commands. Lift up your heads, O gates, making the, the gates as if they were people that had to, to lift up and start working and get active and then be lifted up, ancient doors, openings. You know, picture like a, something like a, a medieval uh, grate is what I picture. You know, the portcullis or whatever that comes down. You know, be lifted up. Uh, open up the gates. And this was 2,000 years before the Middle, Middle Ages. So they weren't literally that. You don't hear me saying that. But that, that fortress idea of opening up the fortress, opening up the town, opening up the city, opening up the gates, open to greatness is the call here. Because God is there. And he's doing more than knocking. There's more than knocking going on as he's here. The picture uh, of lifting up your, your heads, O oh, gaze, lift it up, ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. The picture in mind is most likely the, uh, the ascent of the Ark of the Covenant. That box that had the uh, copy of the Ten Commandments in it and some manna, and the jaw, the, the staff that budded, you know, that, that ark, that symbol of God's presence with his people that went through the wilderness from Mount Sinai onward, that was with the people while they were in the promised land and had yet to f build a temple. You know, the picture is probably the scene that unfolds in 2 Samuel 6, which we don't have time to go to, where David has in his heart to bring the Ark of the Covenant up from the field where it's been staying, to come up into Jerusalem, to be there in God's city, in the capital city. And that ought to, if you've read your Bibles, call something to mind of, wait, I remember something weird and sketchy about that. It's all in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. There's two times they tried to bring the Ark up. The first time, they put the ark on a cart and they just started bringing it up and it must have hit a pothole. Can you relate to that? Yeah. Like 69th Street, you know. Hits a pothole and the ark starts to fall off this cart. And a man named Uzzah reaches out to keep the ark from falling. Is that a good thing? Yeah. No. Yeah, he's struck dead. Yay, we're bringing up the ark. Wait a minute, Uzzah's dead. What just happened? But David's reaction is very strong. He doesn't understand. But that chapter later on, they went back to God's word. You know, they said, maybe God cares about how we handle his stuff. Maybe God cares and has given us instructions about how to deal with him, how to approach him. And sure enough, he had. And they put those instructions to work. They had priests offering sacrifices. And they would go slowly and offer shouts of joy. I'm going to guess they made the path a little more level. That no one would be tempted to reach out. You know, that they prepared, that they opened up, that they were aware of the presence of God and, and had a fear of this God. 
But at the same time, they're rejoicing because as they make a step and a step, they see God moving closer and closer. And every time God has come into the camp for the people of God up to this point, whether it was fighting against the Philistines or fighting to enter the promised land, a shout would go up. Woo! God is in the camp. Remember last week? Right? Woo! That's that praise that just comes out of us. And by the way, my voice is kind of hoarse because I went to the soccer game last night and my team scored and I shouted, not thinking through the consequences of this is going to make my voice rough in the morning. Right? That, that response just comes out. But that's that's the sense here where the Ark of the Covenant, the, the symbol of the very presence of God is coming up into the city of the people of God right near them. And someone has died because of how they mishandled that. But now as they've taken the proper precautions, as they've paid attention to what God wants, as they've offered the sacrifices, giving him full attention, respect, and fear, What's the response? This is the time when David, the king, rejoices before the Lord and he's dancing around and praising the Lord and leaping for joy. You know, and like his, his roby thing has fallen up and his wife afterwards is like, you made a fool of yourself. And he essentially says, I'd do it again. The joy that ought to en encompass us. If we open up, do you see the vulnerability there that's required? The humility to draw near to God and say, God, you, it's up to you. I have my opinions about how we ought to worship God. I have my opinions about what the world ought to be like. I have my opinions about what you ought to do and 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 I ought to do and she ought to do. They ought to do and those people over there, especially what they ought to do and those people over there, Lord. But you know what, Lord? It doesn't matter if it's not your will. To have that fear of the Lord that would put him from your heart into the right place. That you would say there is absolutely nothing in your life more important than understanding what the King of Glory wants from you. And to be willing to listen to that, to hear it. That you might enter into that joy because he's doing more than knocking here. He's commanding you to open. To open to greatness. And he's giving some pressure. But more than pressure. He's the king of glory. Do you know what that means? Glory. It's another one of those words like blessing you know, that just kind of loses meaning. Glory has to do with, with weight, with significance. Literally weight, you know, originally, but then just weight, as in we would use that word. That was a weighty thing you were talking about. You know, the, the experience and the, and the picture is that God draws near and you're going to feel something. You're going to feel the pressure. And that glory is so overwhelming that it, it will crush you if he doesn't veil that glory some. If he doesn't take his weight off. You know, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you ever wrestled with your kids when they were little and toddlers, right? And, and you go to pin them as you're wrestling, you know, count to three. Did you lay on them like you would lay on someone else? Right? You, could, you would crush them. Little four-year-old with 200 pounds of fat laying on them, right? They wouldn't breathe. 
but you would veil your glory, your full ways. That, you know, that's what God is doing. That's what he does in creation. You know, why we are not all annihilated because he's put this distance between us and he has not fully revealed himself in the scriptures. Every time God begins to peel back the curtain so we see him a little better, people are like, whoa! When just as messengers, angels show up, people are prone to bow down before them and worship them. You get the sense of unworthiness when Jesus is up on the mountain of, we call of transfiguration and, and begins to reveal himself. You know, Peter just gets crazy, loopy. Starts saying inane things. Like, let's build some tents and tabernacles. And it's like, what are you talking about? He literally loses his mind because the glory of God is drawing near. You know, Isaiah has that vision. Isaiah, uh, chapter 6 talks about it where he's in heaven and he sees the temple in heaven, the, the, the reality of the presence of God in the spiritual realm. And he says what? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. The Lord of hosts. The, the, the word hosts is about armies. It's about military strength, about might and power. And you feel this, this weight of all the power in the universe, this glory of the presence of the God with, who made you, who have, you have rebelled against, who has given you everything that is good and right and pleasing, and all you're focused on is the stuff that he's given to you, not lifting up and even saying thank you. Maybe you say thank you, and then you get back to just playing with your stuff, and you decide how you're going to use it, and you go over there, and you do this thing, and he doesn't enter into your mind. And he comes near. And it ought to be scary. But it also ought to bring joy. This is the wonder of that scene of bringing up the ark the second time, of the joy. There's tremendous danger. They're carrying like a nuclear bomb, right? You could die if it goes off, if you handle it wrong. And they're bringing it up and they're rejoicing. It's like this power is ours. The presence of, of the one who rules over all things is with us. That's unbelievable. That's incredible that he has come down to make us greater. He's come down to be with us. And in fact, who, none of us can ascend the hill of the Lord, right? None of us have pure hands, and pure heart and clean hands. But only one of us has, ever. That God, the King of glory, would come down not merely in, in an ark and not merely in a pillar of fire, but come down and enter into humanity and unite himself with us, taking on human flesh, becoming one with us, yet still God, the God-man, that he would come among us, not to strike us down, not to beat us up, but to ask us to open up to true greatness. To say, you know what? Jesus, the one who tabernacled among us, who tented among us, who dwelled among us, fulfilling all those promises of the sacrifices and everything else, that this one came and he ascended that hill. He rose up that hill, the same hill that the ark went up, the same hill that the people of God went up to to worship at the temple, the same hill that had some crosses on it. And upon one of which the Lord of glory died. To say, you know what? That's what I need. That that's the place of greatness. 
to open up to that with humility, to give him access to your heart. And say, Lord, I, I have shut you out. I have hidden parts of my life from you. I'm not letting you fully rule over me. And you love me enough to draw near. You love me enough to knock on that door to press upon me, maybe to make my life uncomfortable and hard that I would not trust in the stuff of this world or even in my own strength, but only in you, Lord, forgive me. And as you experience that, as you confess that, joy will come. Confidence can come from that as we recognize that it is in God's hand, that we can get that better place That God has provided for your sin and your guilt and your shame. That God has provided for you the power to break free from sin. That God has provided for you the humility that you would seek reconciliation with those who you have offended and with those who have offended you. That you would be open to this because the path, the greatness Jesus shows us is downward. It is humility. That if you would meet Jesus there in that low place, He will lift you up. And the weight of his glory will not crush you, but will pull you up, lift you up. And that you might then go, fearing him above all else, putting him first, you will have complete confidence to fly 9,000 miles around the world, to share the gospel with your friend, to just admit you're wrong, to go in an uncomfortable direction, to follow wherever the Lord is leading. That's the beauty of the promise here, if we would put that fear, put the Lord first, He will lift you up. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank You that You are the King of kings, that You are the Lord of hosts, that You are the King of glory, that You are the one mighty in battle. And Lord, that You have won the battle for us against sin and the devil that You've won the battle against death itself, and that you come to conquer our hearts, not with a sword, but with Your Spirit. Lord, for those who do know You and love You, would would You uncover the parts of our heart that we're holding back from You, places that we are not open to You, where we're resisting Your leading and what You want from us. Lord, for those who who do not know you at all, open their hearts wide. Lord, give them the grace to open up to your glory and let them experience the transformation that can happen where they can find the right fear that leads them in confidence out into this challenging world. I pray in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen.